0: And shots were fired apparently at President Reagan as he was coming out of the Washington Hilton Hotel this afternoon The president was... Reagan was shot, Kennedy was shot Lincoln was shot FDR died in office as did William Henry Harrison and Warren G. Harding Woodrow Wilson caught the big 1918 Spanish flu Eisenhower had a heart attack and stroke in office Presidents aren't safe from danger illness and death. In 1981, when Reagan was rushed to hospital, having taken a bullet to the lung, his suit was cut from his body and dropped to the floor of the operating theatre where it was trampled and forgotten, whilst the doctors and nurses fought to save his life. But in a pocket of that suit was a little card containing a secret code. And that code word allowed Reagan to launch a nuclear attack. But without that tiny little code word, America's nuclear forces were quite useless because the President, had he phoned in an order to launch the nukes, wouldn't be able to confirm his identity to the commanders on the other end of the line. He needed that card, nicknamed the Biscuit, but it was lying on the floor. At least Reagan had a good excuse for having a broken biscuit. We've learned that Bill Clinton, who used to attach his biscuit to a bunch of credit cards in his wallet with a rubber band, lost the thing. Lost it for months. But today we're not talking about careless presidents, we're talking about what happens to America's nuclear retaliation, its command and control of its nuclear forces, if a president is incapacitated or dies. In the old days, maybe it wasn't such a big deal if your president was ill and unable to carry out his duties. He'd languish in bed for a few days, or a few weeks maybe, but who'd know about it? News only travels fast in the modern age, but before phones and before internet and before Twitter and TikTok and before Soviets with missiles and four-minute warnings, was it really such a big deal? There'd be time, plenty of time for the guy to recover, or if he didn't, plenty of time to sort out a replacement. What's the rush? Of course, the modern age changed all that. The president was now always visible. So visible that we're able to go on YouTube and actually see Kennedy being shot. Troops of journalists follow the president around these days. The president's on Twitter, he's on TV, and of course the arrival of nuclear missiles meant the president had to be around and alert at all times because in theory he could get a phone call at any hour of the day or night telling him he had minutes to decide what to do because waves of missiles were incoming. No, in that type of world, a world of mass media and missiles, you couldn't have a president who was ill and incapable. No sir, not allowed, not anymore. But presidents, well, they're just guys, aren't they? They're only human. They might get sick. They might, as with Reagan, be shot at and have to go into surgery and be lost for a while under anaesthesia. What then? In 1947, just two years after the bomb arrived on the scene to change everything, plan was agreed. If something happened to the President, the Vice President would take over. After the Vice President in the line of succession, came the Speaker of the House, then the President of the Senate, and then onwards down to the cabinet, depending on the dates their departments were created. Okay, good plan, nice and simple. Draws up a nice, clear line of succession which anyone can follow and see the logic in. Brilliant. Job done. Well, not quite. The line of succession covers the death of a president. It covers the idea of a sudden vacancy and how do you fill it as quickly as possible. But what happens if the president is only temporarily out of action? such as a Reagan or an Eisenhower or a, or a George W. Bush when they had to be anaesthetised for surgery? What if the president knows in advance that he'll be in hospital and will be going under the knife and so wishes to hand over for just an hour, maybe two, maybe three if he's still a bit groggy when he comes round? You don't need a whole new president then, do you? You just need a stand-in. As we said, in the old days it had been fine. Let the poor guy recover, give him some bed rest, and I'll be back in a few days. Oh, but not now. In the nuclear age, fast responses were always needed. And this was reinforced, of course, by the Cuban Missile Crisis, and then JFK's assassination. It was recognised that a formal plan was required for presidential incapacitation. And so the 25th Amendment was created in 1965. This reinforced the idea that yes, the vice president would take over following the death of a president, but it also created rules for temporary incapacity, such as a presidential illness or what would happen if others around him deemed the president physically or mentally unfit to serve. Under the 25th, the president can temporarily sign over power to his vice president, but and this is where it's interesting, the vice president can also move to take power from the president. If he thinks the president is unfit to lead, physically or mentally, but the president refuses to recognise that or refuses to step down, the vice president can go and gather support from cabinet leaders, get their signatures and present it to Congress. So there is, in theory a way to push the president out if the vice president has a majority of cabinet behind him. So there, you have rules for what to do if a president is suddenly snatched away in death, or if he is going to be temporarily out of action because of illness or surgery. Anything else we need to check here? Well, yes, because of the presence of nuclear weapons again, those things really do interfere, don't they? Jimmy Carter in 1980 brought in the Designated Survivor Rule. You might know about this because of uh, a Netflix drama, um, not a very good one, which uh, brought this to everyone's attention. The Designated Survivor Rule meant that whenever all the American bigwigs were gathered together, everyone who'd be in the line of succession for president, we had to ensure that at least one of them was absent. So that meant... If some whopping terrorist attack killed everyone present, there'd still be some obscure little politician sitting safely in the suburbs with a nuclear football on his knee saying, Oh, you have got to be kidding me. So we have plans then to quickly replace the dead president, to stand in for an incapacitated president, to push out a dangerously unfit president, and to elevate some anonymous designated survivor to the presidency if everyone else is wiped out. In any of these scenarios, you've got a new guy suddenly in charge. And of course, one of the main reasons why this has to be done quick, quick, quick is because of the nuclear threat. Because America's president, whoever it may be, has to be able to give an order to launch nuclear weapons in a matter of minutes. The Cold War standoff and the ridiculous idea that America's missiles are all poised on hair-trigger alert means the president has to decide fast whether to launch them. Absurd, isn't it? Scoop back through my archive to the recent episode about the button... ...where I interviewed former Defence Secretary William Perry... ...and he tells us of incidents where they thought that nuclear missiles were incoming, ...only to realise it was a mistake. Mistakes happen, of course, and yet... ...the system allows the President hardly any time to make sure it is a mistake... ...and then carefully decide on any retaliation. The luxury of time is stripped away... ...because America's missiles are all sitting there snug in their silos... And if they're not launched quickly in the face of an incoming attack, then they're lost because they're targets. The Soviets are coming right at them, so use them or lose them. Minutes to decide, hurry up. And it's because of this perceived need to respond and retaliate fast that the president and the vice president and the designated survivor all carry a nuclear football. Yep, even the little designated survivor gets his own football, just for an hour or so. Even then, I imagine a secret service agent in the room saying, Don't touch that! Don't touch it! Leave it! Leave it! So, let's look at the designated survivor. He's sitting there, um, in a room somewhere in the suburbs, safe, away from where all the other important people have gathered. He's looking at his watch and he's waiting for the phone call to say, "Okay, we're fine, the big event is safely over, you're free to go. But what if the phone call, when it came, told him that the capital had been destroyed? That Washington DC was dust and he was now president? Oh, and by the way, we've also picked up an incoming missile attack, so what do we do? Well, I would crawl under a table and sob. But we have to assume that our guy is made of tougher stuff. Well, he'd open the football, which is, of course, a big heavy black briefcase containing everything a modern president needs to end the world. He'd find inside the bag a menu. They call it a menu, which I always find quite disturbing. He'd find a menu showing him the various attack plans he could go for. So he... Runs his finger down the menu, makes his choice, and then of course seems to communicate that choice to the military. This is where the biscuit comes in. Remember the biscuit, that little card that Bill Clinton lost? He rips open the seal on his card, and there's a code word on it. One which has never been seen by any human being. I learned that from the brilliant book Raven Rock by Garrett Grath which I recommend to you, of course. So no one has seen the code word printed on his biscuit. The card is uh, printed off by a machine and then instantly sealed. So the code word inside it, no one has seen it. No one could possibly know what it is. And that code word identifies the designated survivor. So he confirms his code word down the line to the military guys, confirms his ID... And that enables them to carry out his nuclear orders. And that's why it's so important not to break your biscuit. As of the 1980s, the Russians also have a nuclear briefcase called the Chiget. But far more interesting is their plan to retaliate if their leader and all possible leaders and all designated survivors have been killed. They created a system in 1985 called Perimeter, which meant that even if all the leaders were gone, there would still be a little kernel of officers deep underground in a huge bunker in the Ural Mountains, nicknamed the Grotto, from where they could send an electronic signal directly to missiles and order them to launch. So even in Russia... If all the leadership, all the Soviet leadership were killed, there were still a bunch of guys underground who could launch the missiles. But here's where it gets even scarier. What if the grotto itself had been pulverised? What if literally everyone in the Soviet Union was killed? I'm talking everyone, leadership, military and civilians. Even then, the dead Soviets could still retaliate. There was a particular aspect of Perimeter, nicknamed the Dead Hand, which could detect nuclear explosions on Soviet territory and, in response, send a signal to their own missiles and launch them. Even if everyone is dead, they could still, in theory, retaliate. Now there's something to think about. Would you rather have an unfit president in charge of the nukes? Or a computer. Some might argue the case has been made of late for the computer. Now let's look at Britain. I think the most quaint and strange and fascinating aspect of Britain's nuclear launch procedures is the famous letters of last resort. But I won't discuss them here as we have a whole episode on that. Again, just look through the archive. Here's an interesting detail about Britain's launch procedures, taken from Peter Hennessy's mammoth book about Royal Navy submarines, The Silent Deep. Uh, Sorry, let me be fair, it's a a work of joint authorship. It's by Peter Hennessy and James Jenks. In the 1960s, Britain tackled the idea of identification. If the Prime Minister is ordering a launch, how do we know it's him? Americans, of course, take the biscuit, but in Britain we had a TV camera. It was a two-way CCTV system so that the Prime Minister and the launch officer could see each other as orders were being given. The Silent Deep tells us that there was a camera in Harold Wilson's Principal Private Secretary's office which was fixed to focus on a table upon which sat a blue telephone. If the Prime Minister ever lifted that phone and pressed three buttons, they'd be connected to the Polaris duty officer, who would appear on the screen. Okay, well that's fine for a planned nuclear launch, but what if there was a bolt from the blue attack? Well, in that case, the Prime Minister had appointed nuclear deputies, who could issue orders if he was unavailable at the crucial moment. But of course, what if the Prime Minister and his nuclear deputies are all gone? Well, in that case, the nuclear submarines had no clear instruction in that scenario, except to try and put themselves under US command. And then of course, from 1972 onwards, came the letters of last resort, giving them the Prime Minister's instructions from beyond the grave. Now I'm sorry this episode was a day late, Um, I had my flu jag on Saturday, and yesterday I just felt very under the weather, as the GP warned me might happen, so here we are a day late, I didn't do much yesterday except drink lots of chicken noodle soup and read a book about Peter Sutcliffe, Uh, surprisingly I feel better today. Remember you can support the podcast on Patreon if you enjoy it, look at patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo, and you can donate some cash each month. And thank you this week to the following patrons. Mark Willis, Neil Collinson, John Cinnamon and Heather Parker. Oh, and I forgot to say, this is the 100th episode of the podcast. We were supposed to be doing part two of the panic episode from a fortnight ago, but given the stuff that's been happening with Trump, I thought we'd have a quick detour into presidential nuclear authority, that type of thing. And also, because it's the 100th episode, I am going to send out... A little Atomic Hobo gift to five patrons because, according to Patreon, these are the guys who've been supporting me for the longest time. They've been with me since June 2018, donating cash each month. So, as a thank you, I will send you all <laughs> the great treasure that is an Atomic Hobo coaster. So, thank you to Gordy McNair, Paul Jonathan Viner, Peter Lee, Damien Ryan, and Brian Outlaw. Oh, and as I was recording this, I just got another email saying Andrew Elliott has just signed up to my Patreon. So thank you, Andrew. Thank you for signing up and supporting the podcast. And on Monday's episode, we will go back to Panic.